Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us together today. And it's always a delight to be together and to gather in your name, to be able to gather around um, this shared faith, shared life that we have in Christ. And Lord, as we, um, as we return to this great story, uh, the beginning of your work in the world that is recorded in the book of Genesis, we pray that you would help us to learn, help us to think, help us to be edified and encouraged and, and transformed by the things that we consider so meet us in this time and help us, instruct us, and uh, may it be a fruitful time for each one according to your goodness to us in Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we'll finish off Genesis uh, this morning. And I've mentioned before, and there are lots of ways that Genesis is kind of organized, different commentators view it in different ways, but I think uh, the best kind of ordering arrangement that, that I found is, is the book being segmented around these 10 generations sections, because it really is telling the story of the emergence of the Israelite people, the Abrahamic people. And so um, it begins with a the generations of the heavens and the earth. In other words, the creation itself then you have the, the uh, generations of Adam, and then you have Noah, then you have Noah's sons, then you have Shem, then you have Terah, the father of Abraham, and then you have uh, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. And so Jacob's generation section is the last one. It's the one that, that introduces the, the last segment in the book of Genesis. And interestingly, where it's, it begins, if you look in chapter 37 in Genesis, it says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. This is obviously after Jacob has come back from his 20 years in Haran, where he served his uncle Laban. And it says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph went 17 years of age. So it kind of breaks from the pattern, all of the other generation sections, including um, Esau's, which just precedes this. It's these are the generations of Esau. And then it starts listing all of these names who begat so-and-so and his sons were these and, and the whole genealogy follows. And here you have that pattern with Jacob, but no description of his descendants. You just have Joseph introduced here. And so the rest of the book then is the Joseph story. And at a certain point, then we get back to Jacob's actual genealogy. But it, again, when you see things like this in the text, it should make you stop and, and think, okay, why did the writer break from his pattern? Why does he say, here are the generations, and then immediately it's telling the story of Joseph? And I think, among other things, the, the reason for that is that it wants to emphasize that Joseph's, Joseph and his story, particularly as it implicates Egypt in the Egyptian exile, uh, puts Joseph and that circumstance at the center of Jacob's family. If we're to understand Jacob's genealogy, his family, the, the, the circumstances of his family, the movement of the story forward, 
sitting in the very center of that is the Egyptian exile. Joseph was at the center of the covenant household as it found itself in exile in Egypt. And that idea of Israel in Egypt in exile becomes really the primary theme that carries through the rest of the Old Testament, even to the point of God promising another deliverance, another um, exodus, as it were, that will come later in Israel's history. So the time in Egypt, the exodus out of Egypt, even the significance of the Passover and all of that, that really reaches its high point, obviously, in the person and the work of Jesus himself. And as I've said, interestingly, Jesus chose Passover as the time in which he would give himself as a sacrifice for sin, not the Day of Atonement, which is what we would maybe think, but Passover, because the great significance of his work was this is the great work of deliverance. This is the great exodus that the prophets had been promising, a new exodus, a second great exodus for the people of God. So Dumbrell, in his book, The Faith of Israel, which if you haven't read it, it's a good book. It kind of, again, traces the Israelite story through the Old Testament. But he says this, the long and distinct Joseph narratives close the book of Genesis. As the theme in the Jacob cycle was the establishment of the 12 tribes of Israel, the theme of the Joseph narratives is Israel's remarkable preservation outside the promised land. As such, the Joseph account functions as a bridge between the patriarchal narratives, in other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob narratives, and the book of Exodus, tying the promises to the fathers with the pending occupation of the land. Joseph is presented as the preserver not only of Israel's traditions, but of Israel herself. So again, Joseph is put right in the very center of um, the Jacob narrative, but specifically as the focal point of even Jacob's genealogy if for no other reason than because he's the one in whom the family of Jacob ultimately finds its preservation and its future. So I don't know if you read through this section this week, but this takes us through chapter 50. Uh, Jacob, or the, the very last thing that happens in the book of Genesis is Joseph dying. Joseph's death and his uh, his uh, request of his brothers at the time that he dies. So Joseph's story takes us then through the balance of the book of Genesis. But as I say, his story is really key to the Egyptian exile. And there isn't a greater biblical theme, Old Testament biblical theme, than the exile. The exile and the Passover. They become the great prototype of the work that God would do in the future when again he arose on behalf of his people and ended their ultimate exile, the creational exile that happened in Genesis 3. So interestingly, Joseph's story is centered around pairs of dreams. Again, when you think of patterns in the story, those sorts of patterns are intended to catch our attention and Joseph's story and, and the way in which it plays out is, is kind of built around a series of pairs of dreams. And it begins with two prophetic dreams that pointed to his future status in his family. The first dream uh, was interpreted even by his brothers as the fact that he would rule over them. 
he would have preeminence over them. And then he has a second dream uh, that is interpreted by his parents as the fact that he would even have preeminence over them. He would have preeminence over Jacob in a sense. But what's interesting about those dreams is that not only do they reveal or speak to what will come in the future, but the dreams themselves were instrumental in the fulfillment of what the dreams disclosed. The dreams become themselves the instrument through which what they spoke of comes to pass. So first, his dreams were a catalyst. These two dreams of his future supremacy, they were the catalyst in his brother's betrayal and his exile from Canaan. Now, they already knew that Joseph was his father's favorite. And he was his father's favorite because he was the child of Rachel. And Jacob loved Joseph more than than his other brothers. Benjamin hadn't been born at this point um, or, you know, was very young at this point. But Joseph was the favorite of his father as an older child. And he made him that tunic, you know, that coat of many colors. And then when this dream came along, the brothers who already resented Joseph decided they'd had enough. And so initially they decide they're going to kill him. But Reuben, the oldest, intervenes and says, no, we, we can't do this to him. He, he's our brother. We can't, we can't do this. So they finally decide what they're going to do. They see some Midianite, Ishmaelite traders. You know, that, that was a Near Eastern trade routes went through the land of Israel. That's partly why it was such a strategic place. Uh, but they see this caravan heading towards Egypt, uh, merchants and traders, and they decide to sell him to these traders. So that's how he ends up in Egypt. And Potiphar, who is the, the man who is the head over, over the prison, so to speak, he's the chief guard or the, you know, the, the warden, so to speak. I can't think of the term that, that the NAS uses. But, but he's kind of the, the chief officer under Pharaoh with respect to uh, the prisons. And Joseph is sold to Potiphar and becomes a servant in his house. And immediately, because again, God is with him, God is blessing him, the text makes it clear, Joseph rises to this prominence where Potiphar entrusts everything to his care, everything about his household. He trusts him with everything. And over time, Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph and she begins to make overtures toward him. And this happens repeatedly until she finally gets so frustrated that when he flees from her and she's left holding his coat, she decides that that's the opportunity to punish him for his unwillingness to come into her. So anyway, she tells her husband that he tried to attack her and and he fled when she cried out and here's his garment to show that that's what happened. So he ends up then being in prison. Once again, in a place of humiliation and subjugation but once again immediately and the story wants you to see this keep this repeated theme he ends up again coming to a place of prominence in the prison under Potiphar where he ends up being in a sense the one who oversees all of the prisoners and the um, day-to-day goings-on in the prison 
in the in the course of that process, the Pharaoh has a cupbearer and a chief baker who he's had imprisoned. We don't know why. He just found fault with them. The cupbearer was the one who would test the, you know, they test the food and the drink to make sure it wasn't poison. But they end up in jail and they have each a dream, the second pair of dreams. And the cupbearer's dream is interpreted by Joseph as the fact that Pharaoh was going to restore him to his office. And he tells him, when he does that, remember me. I'm here unjustly. I've done nothing wrong. Remember me to Pharaoh. But of course, the cupbearer, when he's restored to his position, he gets on with his life. He forgets about Joseph. The chief baker has a dream, and Joseph interprets it as the fact that Pharaoh's going to take his life. He's not going to be released. He's going to be executed, and that's what happens. So a couple of years pass. Joseph, again, still imprisoned, and Pharaoh has a pair of dreams. And at that point, the cupbearer remembers, oh, there's this guy named Joseph that I met who went Went back when I had a dream and and the, the baker had a dream. He was able to interpret those dreams. So Pharaoh sends for him and he interprets those dreams for Pharaoh. They're two dreams involving ears of corn, you know, flourishing, thriving ears of corn, withered ears of corn, uh, you know, seven cows that are very healthy and, and robust, seven gaunt weak cows. And the weak cows eat up the strong cows and the weak ears eat up... And he says the dreams are one and the same. Seven years of abundance are coming for Egypt. And then those seven years of abundance will be consumed by seven years of intense famine. And so he suggests to Pharaoh that what he do is begin now a process of building infrastructure and a process to uh, collect and to store Grain to maximize those years of abundance and store that up so that there's resource for Egypt when this famine comes over the whole world, which would mean the Near Eastern world, at least the Middle East. And so Pharaoh, through this process, recognizes Joseph's wisdom and he exalts him to be chief ruler in his kingdom, second only to Pharaoh, just as he had been second only to Potiphar. So you have these three pairs of dreams. And as I say here, the first pair predicted Joseph's supremacy, but they led to his subjugation, to his being sold into slavery by his brothers and and ended up being a slave in Egypt. The second two pairs came in the middle of his subjugation, his imprisonment, but led to his exaltation. So the second pair were actually the foundation for the third pair. The second pair, the cupbearer and the baker, those dreams were the the foundation for Joseph's involvement with the third dreams. Remember, the cupbearer said, oh, I remembered a guy. So the second pair are the foundation for the third, and the third resulted in Joseph being exalted to become Lord over all Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. So the final pair served to fulfill the first pair, the promise of the first pair. Joseph obtained preeminence over his family as the first dreams had foretold, but in an unforeseen and startling way. 
the dreams that Joseph had gave no indication of how this would come about and the amount of time that it would take. He was 17 when he had his dreams. He was 30 when he appeared before Pharaoh. 13 years of suffering and difficulty and tumult in the dreams being fulfilled. An unforeseen and startling way through abuse, enslavement, degradation, and unjust suffering. And as he becomes exalted Lord in Egypt, it's not just, gee, isn't this great? He's now ruler in Egypt, but he becomes savior of the world in the sense that he becomes the holder of life. In the context of this famine where it's getting worse and worse and worse to the point where people are finally throughout Egypt selling their own property, selling their own lives to become servants in order to have seed to cultivate the land for Pharaoh in order that they would be able to live. It basically becomes a kind of feudal system where Pharaoh owns all the property and the people are just working the land in order to have basic subsistence to live. But Joseph is the one who holds the key to life. And not just for the sake, as we'll see, of the covenant family, but the whole world. All the world, all the earth, meaning all of that area of the Near East affected by that famine, are coming to Joseph to buy grain from him. In his power is life and death. Which harkens back again to the promise in Eden of a life-restoring seed. Remember what the fall did was bring the principle of death upon the whole creation. And the promise of this seed who would reverse that curse is that this one would bring life. And you see a picture of that in Joseph. He is the one who is the source of life for the world. So this one who had suffered and died, and I put died in in quotation marks because he didn't literally die, but as far as his family was concerned, and certainly as far as his father was concerned, he was dead. My son has died. And that becomes clear even when, you know, they're trying to get Benjamin to Egypt. No, all I've got left is Benjamin. Joseph is dead. The only son of Rachel that's left is Benjamin, my youngest So the one who had suffered and died because of the sins of others had become through his ordeal the appointed agent of their deliverance and preservation. By his death and subsequent exaltation, Joseph was made the possessor of life, the one who alone could vanquish death through the provision of living bread to all the nations. Now, we don't read all of this Uh, you know, in terms of what would come in Jesus as it's presented here. But again, God is building a story of how it would, how it would be that he would accomplish this design for the creation. And all of these themes and ideas that are worked into the story should stay in our minds so that by the time, again, that we come to the birth of Jesus, we can say, I know who that one is and I know what his life's going to be and I know what he's going to do because I know the story. And Jesus said that to his own generation. If you knew the scriptures, you would know me. You would recognize me. So that's the way that Joseph is is, uh, presented here. That's the way these dreams play out and the way his story unfolds. 
So in the midst of the famine then, and I'm skipping over a lot of this, but in the midst of the famine, um, Jacob and his family hear that there's grain in Egypt. And so the brothers go down. Now, not Benjamin. Again, Jacob doesn't want to send Benjamin. He keeps him there with him. But the other brothers go down. And, and Joseph greets them. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And he keeps his identity hidden from them. So he sells them grain and he sends them away. But he instructs his servants to put their money back in their bags. So when they get back uh, to Canaan, they discover all of them. One of them had already discovered it on the way. But the rest of them discover, hey, how did our money end up back in our bags some, somehow, you know, so even more now we can't go back because it's going to look like we stole this money in addition to getting the grain. So they wait and they wait and they wait and things are getting worse and worse and worse. And finally, Jacob says, you need to go back. And part of what Joseph had done in that first visit is he accused them of being spies. And he said, you know, I will not let you come back here unless you bring your, he'd interrogated them and found out they had this younger brother And he said, you're not coming back here unless you bring him with you. And Simeon was kept there as like a, you know, a guarantee that if they came back, they would bring the brother. He stood in the stead. Well, Jacob is saying, you need to go back. And they're saying, we can't go back unless we take Benjamin. He said, don't ever let me see your face again. So, you know, there's this tension. Finally, Jacob agrees to let them go and take Benjamin. And it's in that second visit. Again, grain is sold to them. They're sent away. Their money's given back to them. But he also takes a silver goblet or a silver uh, cup and hides it in Benjamin's bag. So as they're going back, then Joseph says to his servant, go and pursue them. This has been stolen from me. Go and find out who did it. So the servant stops them and they say, Joseph's brothers all say, we wouldn't do that. Why would we ever do that? And whoever, if this is indeed the case and something was stolen, whoever has it in their possession, that one, you know, will will be your slave. Well, then they find it in Benjamin's, and they're like, but we can't let them take Benjamin back because our father, and, you know, so they go through this whole thing. So anyway, they end up going back, and at that point, then Joseph reveals himself to them. So then the brothers go back, and they tell their father, Joseph is alive, our brother's alive. And then they decide at that point um, to return to Egypt. Uh, Jacob wants to see his son before he dies. So Jacob and all of his household, the 70-some persons, go down to Egypt. So when Jacob learned that Joseph was alive and ruling Egypt, he determined then to journey there with his household. And the text has them leaving the land at Beersheba. Remember, Beersheba was like the southern point. When Abraham first came into the land, he was building altars, staking his claim to the land. And the southernmost altar and the most significant place, the place that was the first well of possession that Abraham had was Beersheba in the south of the land of Canaan. So as they're leaving, it's at Beersheba, right on the border of the land, that God again encounters Jacob. And it's significant because the, Beersheba represents we're leaving the land now. But this is where God gave us a first foothold in the land. And as God meets him there, let's flip over to chapter 45 and we'll just read this little bit here. 
Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all he had. Note that he has the name here, Israel. And we understand the changing of his name. Israel set out with all he had. This is the whole household of Israel and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt just as he had gone with him to Haran. And I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. So Beersheba is the, the place at which they are again leaving the land, not just as individual patriarchs and their wives or their children, but the whole covenant household is now going into exile. You've had all these little exiles of the patriarchs themselves. Now it culminates with the whole Abrahamic household going into exile, but it's met with God's promise as they're departing the land, I will bring you back. This won't be the end. I will bring you back. God assured him that he would abide with him and uphold his covenant promises to him just as he had done earlier at Haran. Now, this is the point then where the narrator returns to Jacob's genealogy. If you read down through here, verse 8 and following, these are the names of the sons of Israel. The genealogy is re-engaged at the point where the writer is, is naming all the people who went to Egypt. So he's directly associating Jacob's genealogy with the, the exile in Egypt. He says, this, this is the generations of Isaac, or generations of Jacob, then he says Joseph when he was 17. Now we've gotten through all of that. Now we're back to the family again and detailing all the members, but as they're the ones who go into Egypt. So the, the point is that the writer wants you to associate Jacob's family with the Egyptian exile, the captivity in, in Egypt. Like Joseph, the nation of Israel would move quickly from prominence to abasement. But also like Joseph, at the appointed time, God's favor and power would raise them from their humiliation to glorious exaltation. Again, hearkening back to Genesis 15, when God ratified his covenant with Abraham, he said, know for certain that your descendants will be oppressed and afflicted in a land not their own. This inheritance that I promised to you isn't going to come right away. But when it comes, I will bring them back, and I will bring them back with many possessions. They will come back in glory. They will come back uh, in a way of triumph. So the rest of the story then is the family in Egypt. And uh, two important pieces of that are uh, the blessing of the 12 sons by Jacob and the blessing of Joseph's two sons. The issue of blessing is important because, first of all, it establishes or kind of underscores the fact that uh, Jacob is now, Jacob as Israel is now to be extended, corporatized in his 12 sons. The blessing of the patriarch goes to all 12 sons, not just to one son. We've moved from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob to 
Jacob's family corporatized. These 12 sons are to become the 12 tribes of Israel. The other thing we see with the blessing of the 12 sons is that the most narrative space, the longest blessing comes to Joseph. And if you read that blessing, this is in chapter 49, the blessing of the 12 sons, there's a prominence given to Judah in the sense that he's identified that he will be the royal son, the son in whom the kingdom, you know, the kingship will be invested. The the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, the one to whom it belongs. But Joseph also has a prominent blessing. And specifically, he, his, the prominence of, of his blessing is, is a covenantal prominence in that he's to be reckoned twice in Israel under both his sons. The 12 tribes of Israel, Levi is extracted because they're the priestly tribe. They're holy to the Lord. So the 12 tribes don't really include Levi in, in you know, the land reckoning and all of that. Joseph gets a double portion in Ephraim and Manasseh. And you see that even in the blessing that God, God calls um, Joseph's sons. He blesses them individually. He blesses his 12 sons. Then he blesses these two grandsons. But in blessing the two grandsons, you see the same pattern repeated again. The younger will have the preeminence, right? Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. Now it's Ephraim over Manasseh. Manasseh is the oldest. And Jacob, you know, when Joseph brings them he, he, to his father, he arranges them so that the father's right hand, the prominent hand, will go on Manasseh, and Jacob crosses his hands. And Joseph says, no, father, because J- Jacob doesn't see well at that point. He says, no, father, this one's the oldest. And he says, no, this is what I intend. Um, the younger will have the prominence over the older. And Ephraim becomes later the leading tribe of the northern kingdom, even to the point that often the kingdom of Israel is referred to under the name of Ephraim. So Joseph gets a double portion. He gets a double portion uh, among the sons of Israel. He he attains that that prominence. So as these blessings uh, kind of as a preface to the blessings, Jacob announces that he's about to die. And he tells them that when I die, take my body back to the land and bury my body with my fathers in the cave at Machpelah, right? The land, the piece of ground that Abraham bought where Abraham was buried, Sarah was buried, Isaac was buried, near Mamre, the the cave at Machpelah, have me be buried there. So when Jacob then dies, Joseph says to Pharaoh, this was our father's request. And Pharaoh says, take him back and bury him. So a huge entourage goes back. And when they cross over the Jordan and they have this time of of wailing and they're back in the land and now there's this mourning of, of Jacob's death the inhabitants of the land who see it and recognize them as Egyptians, you know, this huge entourage, they name that place the Morning of Egypt, M-O-U-R-N, the Morning of Egypt, which is interesting. But they bury Jacob there, and then the family goes back to Egypt. So their exile is going to continue. But Jacob's burial back in the land is a kind of 
presaging or an anticipation of the fact that, again, this exile will not be permanent. And you see at the very end of Genesis, as Joseph is about to die, he tells them, take my bones back with you when you leave. He tells his brothers that. And Joseph, when he dies, is not buried in Egypt. His body's embalmed and placed in a sarcophagus. It's put in a place of holding and waiting. Joseph himself becomes, uh, among his brothers, the centerpiece of Israel's hope that one day God will fulfill his word and we will be delivered. And at this point, Israel still enjoys a huge prominence in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh's given them the best of the land. They're shepherds. You know, he's given them the land of Goshen, which is the fertile uh, um, grazing lands. And he's, he's given them every kind of uh, place of prominence, prestige in the land. But Exodus is going to begin with the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died and another Pharaoh came along. And now that time of blessing and prominence begins to shift to oppression and persecution. But even though things are well with the people in Egypt, Joseph still says, and even though he's Lord in Egypt, he says, take my bones back. He died in faith. He died in faith. Believing that God would keep his word. Just as Jacob had said, take me back. So Joseph says, take me back. But Joseph wouldn't be taken right away. He would dwell with his brothers, with his kinsmen in the land of Egypt, and he would not leave Egypt until he left with the whole household. So that's the way Genesis ends. Joseph and his story then make a monumental contribution to this unfolding history of salvation how God is going to do this great restoring, renewing work. And Joseph played both a vital role in advancing Israel's history. He's the centerpiece of this whole Egyptian episode, which becomes really the centerpiece of Israel's own history and confidence in God's faithfulness. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is the God who kept covenant. Uh, The prophets keep pushing them back to look at their history and what God did for them in Egypt. Even as captivity and exile are going to come again for the two kingdoms, it's the promise that God will yet arise as he did before. He slew the dragon Rahab, Egypt, he will arise again, and the people will again be brought out. There will be a new exile that will come, and particularly Isaiah makes much of that. So he advanced Israel's history, Joseph that is, and also the covenant relationship that Israel had with God. But he also serves an important typological and prophetic figure in the process of God's disclosing and building the case for this Abrahamic ruler and savior who is to come. Typology is a a kind of prophetic instrument. It's a species, if you will, of prophecy. And it's the primary form of prophecy in the scripture. Typology is where a person, place, thing, circumstance in its historical meaning and significance and and, uh, import represents something that is yet to come. And that something that is yet to come is called the antitype, the instead of the type. And the antitype always 
is Christological. It always has something to do with the person and the work of Christ. So the Passover was a type, right? The Egyptian exile was a type. The episode at Mount Moriah was a type. Isaac himself was a type. Jacob, in his own way, was a type. Joseph is, in his own way, a type. Moses will be a type. Moses will say to the people, God will raise up for you a a prophet like myself. You must listen to him, right? So typology is a hugely important thing, and it doesn't mean that we try to find Jesus in every passage in the scripture, but God is building the case for this person who is to come and the work that he will do. And as the story is told and the way that it builds its own patterns and symbols and themes and, and the structural form that it takes, all of that is, is to, again, be like brush strokes on a canvas, painting the portrait of what it was that God would finally do in the Messiah. So it just emphasizes, again, how we can't begin with the gospel accounts and think that we really know who this person Jesus is because the gospel writers themselves are showing who he is by running you through the Old Testament scriptures. What they're doing, you know, whether it's the, that constant, you know, continual refrain, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. What they're doing is they're, they're showing their readers that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his ministry, his death, his circumstance is exactly what God had been promising. This is the promised one. How do we know that? Because here's the whole story and these are the myriad ways in which he has fulfilled that story. So if you don't know the story, then, then you can't really understand the way in which he's presented. And then the last thing that I would mention, and we can even discuss this more, but one of the things that comes out to me so intensely in the patriarchal stories, but certainly in the Joseph story, is that it shows us that faith is unwavering confidence in the faithfulness of God. Faith is believing that God will do what he has promised. So, you know, Joseph's faith, his life didn't look the way that he would have expected it. When he had these two dreams in which he would have this uh, prominence over his family members, he had no idea how that was going to play out. And, and the problem that we have is, is instinctively, and certainly in our Christian culture, we associate faith with believing God for what we expect or what we want or the way we think it ought to be. Even to the point that in some Christian traditions, faith is treated as a kind of mystical force. I mean, if I believe God for something, then it's going to happen. And faith isn't confidence in what it's going to look like tomorrow or how this is going to play out in the near term or even specifically what it means for my life. Faith is believing that God will do all that he has promised and somehow I fit into that purpose. But I don't know what that's going to look like. So you you probably heard me say many times through the years that faith is not believing the promises of God. Faith is believing the God who is promised. And there's a difference there because when we believe the promises, we're believing what we think this is about and how this pertains to me. 
So I search through the Bible and I find promises and then I claim them for myself and I say, well, God, you promised this. But if we believe the God who has promised, then we simply say he is faithful and he will keep his word, even though I most likely don't know how that's going to play out. And that was true even in Jesus' generation. You know, Paul believed the promises of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He just couldn't see those promises as finding their yes and amen in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and certainly in the way in which he suffered and died. A dead Messiah, crucified Messiah, was not the way in which God would take his throne and begin to reign. The king of the Jews on a cross made no sense to them, and yet God kept his promises exactly as he had said, and Paul came to realize that. So we have to trust and believe that God is faithful, not try to bind ourselves to what we think he's going to do or how it should look or what would be right or best or anything like that. Because if we do that, all we're trying to do is write God into our narrative. We, we want to write him into our wish dream, and all we're going to end up finding is God is unfaithful because he's not going to write himself into our wish dream. And when he doesn't do what we think he ought to do, then we want to conclude that he's unfaithful instead of concluding, no, we've just tried to make his promises say something that they don't say. Well, let me, let me pray as we close and, and we can talk more about these things. Father, as always, it's, uh, for me at least, always a great delight and a great challenge, a great point of conviction to consider these things and to go back and examine your hand in the lives of your servants through the ages and to recognize that your goodness and your faithfulness, your adherence to your promise to be with your people and to preserve them and to carry them, it often doesn't look the way we think it ought to look. And whether we think of Joseph, who spent 13 years in, in turmoil and difficulty and, and unjust suffering, imprisonment, broken promises, resentment and mistreatment at the hands of his own family members. And yet through all of that was the promise of the dreams that he would gain prominence in his family. But he could have never imagined how that would play out. And so, Father, I pray that each one of us would, in a sense, hold our lives with an open hand that we would embrace each day with an open hand and, and rest in the confidence that the God that we know, the God that we serve, is faithful. And it may mean that our life will end in that day. It may mean that suffering and hardship are coming to us in various ways. But if the uniquely beloved of the Father led a life of suffering and mistreatment and misunderstanding, hardship, deprivation, and ultimately the greatest, most profound offense of the brutality of Calvary. If that was the way the uniquely beloved son entered into his glory, why should we expect that all of life will be the way that we want it to be? But we do know, Father, if we are yours, that we are written into your story. And as Paul said, eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It's never even entered into a human heart. 
what it is that you've prepared for those who love you. So help us to walk out our days as those who love you and trust you, not those who have expectations of the day, not those who have an agenda, not those who seek to impose on you our own wishes, our own desires, but as those who are content to rest in the care and the wisdom of a loving father and doing what is right. I thank you for each one here. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together and to be built up in these things. And may we be ministers and servants of these truths to one another, encouraging and nurturing and striving to see each one grow up in all things into Christ who is the head. We ask these things, Father, with the confidence and with the gratitude that is ours in Christ our Lord. Amen.